In the late 1700s, one of the most dramatic transformations in world economic history took place. Starting in Britain, the Industrial Revolution saw production move from handwork to mechanisation. Steam-powered factories massively increased the output of textiles. In previous centuries, economic growth had puttered along so slowly that shops would sometimes carve their prices in stone on the wall. But with the Industrial Revolution, output per worker began to surge. Alongside the domestication of plants and animals, the Industrial Revolution marks one of the turning points for the world economy. And yet, for the first half, half century after the Industrial Revolution began, most of the benefits didn't flow to workers. From 1790 to 1830, the profit share doubled. Productivity rose, because of course workers were using the new technology to produce more output. But real wages barely budged. Living standards in the cities were often worse than those in the countryside. Housing overcrowding was rife, sewerage flowed in the streets. And the most famous expose of workers' conditions was Frederick Engels' 1844 book, The Condition of the Working Class in England, which concluded, the English middle classes prefer to ignore the distress of the workers. And this is particularly true of the industrialists, who grow rich on the misery of the mass of wage earners. Economic historians refer to the flatlining of real wages in the first half century after the Industrial Revolution as the Engels pause. And there's a bunch of theories as to why real wages eventually began to rise, but it's difficult to escape the conclusion might have had something to do with collective action. In 1833, six agricultural labourers in Dorset swore an oath to stand together against attempts to cut their pay from seven shillings a week to six. The Tollpuddle Martyrs were convicted for swearing a secret oath and transported to Australia. So strong was the support for the union cause that 800,000 people signed a petition calling for them to be pardoned, which was done in 1836. From the factory to the farm, workers kept pushing for the right to organise and strike through petitions, speeches, and the revolutions of 1848. Eventually, workers began to get a fair share of the productivity gains, and the Industrial Revolution became a major driver of better living standards across the world. 184 years after the Tollpuddle Martyrs swore their oath, Margaret Peacock and her fellow workers went on strike. Margaret worked at Australian Paper, Australia's largest envelope manufacturing plant. She earned $21 an hour. Their decision to go on strike at the end of 2017 wasn't taken lightly. The Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union had gone to the Fair Work Commission three times. They were asking for a pay rise of 2.5% a year over three years. The company was offering a deal that averaged 1.6%. Now, it's important to bear in mind what this means in real terms. As a community, Australia has given the Reserve Bank a mandate to keep inflation between 2 and 3%. So 2.5% inflation is right in the middle of the target. That effectively means that Margaret and her fellow envelope manufacturers were putting in a pay claim for zero real wage growth, while the employer wanted to cut their real wages. 
Like the toll puddle martyrs, the envelope workers were simply saying, don't cut our real wages. Margaret estimated that the strike cost her and her husband, who also works at the plant, around $7,000 in lost earnings. A decade ago, the world faced the challenge of the global financial crisis, which led to 20 million job losses worldwide. At the time, Australian policymakers could claim credit for timely fiscal stimulus, which kept the unemployment rate below 6%, while it went to double digit in other countries. Today, our employment performance looks less impressive. At around 5.5%, Australia's unemployment rate exceeds the OECD average. If we had an unemployment rate as low as Germany or the United States, hundreds of thousands more Australians would be in work. The other major challenge for Australia is sharing prosperity across the workforce. Immediately after the crisis, wages bounced back along with output. But in the past six years, real wage growth has all but ground to a halt. After a decade and a half in which real wage growth averaged around 1% a year, average wages in real terms barely budged since 2012. This shows up in the share of national income going to workers in the form of wages, salaries and superannuation benefits. Since the late 1970s, the labour share, depending on exactly how you measure it, has dropped by between 7 and 10 percentage points. Now, in principle, stagnant real wages for average workers could reflect poor productivity, but that just isn't true this time. Just as in the first 50 years of the Industrial Revolution, productivity is growing at a solid rate. Sure, Australia isn't enjoying the same productivity surge we saw in the 1990s, but productivity has not ground to a halt. A bigger problem for employees is they have less bargaining power. Just 13% of Australian workers are in unions, down from half the workforce in the early 1980s. Trade union membership is lowest among private sector workers, 9%, 20-somethings, 9%, recent migrants, 5%, and people who have been working for less than a year, 5%. In agriculture, accommodation, real estate and professional services, union membership rates are only around 2%. Little wonder that the share of Australians who say unions have too much power was 82% in 1979 and 47% in 2016. Conversely, the share of Australians who are concerned about the power of big business has risen. Now, if you're like me, you tend to think of the United States as being the country with the famously low union membership rate compared to Australia. But in 2017, the US union membership rate was 11%, just two percentage points below ours. And while Australian membership rates are declining, US unionisation held steady from 2016 to 2017. 12 US states have a higher union membership rate than Australia. So if you find yourself in California or New York, Connecticut or Hawaii, you're more likely to bump into a union member than you are in Australia. On current trends, Australia and the United States will have the same union membership rate within the decade. Another way is to take a historic look. From 1920 to 1980, the union membership rate in Australia averaged 49%, which is where it was in 1982. 
and it began to plunge. 40% in 1992, 30% in 1997, 20% in 2006. My own long run series suggests we have to go back to 1904 to find a time when the union membership rate was lower than it is today. Not since before the harvester judgment has Australia had such a low union membership rate. What caused union membership to fall? Part of the answer lies in changing laws. The abolition of closed shop laws in the early 1990s, the anti-union work choices legislation of 2006, and a myriad of small tweaks by conservative governments has made it harder for unions to organise. The structure of the economy has also tilted the playing field against organised labour. Union membership is typically higher among full-time workers in manufacturing and in the public sector. An analysis by David Peets suggests that changes in the economy explain a significant portion of the drop in union membership, especially during the earlier period of the decline. There's also this feedback loop problem. Workers appear less likely to join a union the more unequal the workplace becomes. And to see why this matters for Australia, it's worth reviewing the achievements of the union movement. Sick leave in the 1920s. Annual leave in the 1930s. The eight-hour day in the 1940s. Unfair dismissal protection in the 1970s. Banning asbestos in the 1980s. The weekend, paid public holidays, long service leave. Unions helped create the first occupational superannuation schemes which grew into universal superannuation today. Unions spearheaded the campaign for parental leave and are now at the centre of the campaign for family violence leave. It was unions who campaigned for firms in dangerous industries to provide safety equipment rather than expecting workers to bring their own. Careful economic research finds that unions have a causal impact in making workplaces safer. More workers returned home safe to their families today, thanks to unions. And for those injured on the job, unions advocated for workers' compensation payments. Unions too have often found themselves on the right side of history. Maritime unions refused to loan pig iron onto Japanese ships in the 1930s because they foresaw the risk it would come back in bombs. If you've ever enjoyed Centennial Park or the Sydney Botanic Gardens, you should thank the union members who stopped them being destroyed in the 1970s. And all of that is before we get to inequality, which is the main focus of my talk. To discuss inequality with those on the right can be like talking temperance to a drunkard. <laughs> One moment they're telling us that inequality doesn't matter, all that counts is equality of opportunity, not a quality of outcome. Next, they're admitting that maybe inequality does matter, but it really hasn't gotten any worse. As one Liberal backbencher brashly told Parliament recently, inequality is at a record low because of the policies of this government. <laughs> Another approach they have is to admit that inequality is worsening in Australia, but to, the, uh, to argue that the problem isn't worse here than it is in the United States which frankly is a bit like saying Australia shouldn't worry about climate change because temperatures are rising in other countries too. But as Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to say, you can have your own opinion, but not your own facts. 
Over the past 40 years, real wages have risen by 72% for the top tenth, but 23% for the bottom tenth. If low wage earners had enjoyed the same percentage gains as those at the top, they'd be $16,000 a year better off. Since the early 1980s, household income inequality, wealth inequality, top inequality have all risen. Massive increase in property prices since the turn of the century has boosted the property portfolio of the wealthiest fifth by more than half a million dollars on average. It's delivered almost nothing for the poorest fifth. The number of billionaires on the AFR rich list grew from 60 to 76. The combined wealth of the top 200 just in the last year rose by a whopping 21%. If anyone truly tells you that they don't think inequality matters, just ask them a simple question. Would they be just as content if we took all our resources and gave them to one Australian? If you think that's absurd, if you think that perhaps a dollar buys more happiness for a pauper than a billionaire, then congratulations, you're an egalitarian. And it's not just that ethical reason for which inequality matters. Excessive inequality has instrumental costs. It undermines our sense of shared community. It reduces social mobility. It undercuts our egalitarian democracy. It's almost impossible to care about inequality and not care about unions. Across the world, unions are one of the most powerful forces for boosting equality. United States unions were especially effective at equalising the income distribution in the middle of last century because they had large numbers of low-skilled workers who benefited from a significant union wage premium. Declining unionisation explains much of the increase in American inequality in the 1980s. It explains a good share of the gap in inequality between the United States and Britain. In Britain, firms with a strong union presence are less likely to overpay their corporate executives. <coughs> in Australia, falling union membership explains about half of the rise in inequality over the past generation. Unions have a strong history of lending their fiercest voice to the lowest paid members identifying those most in need and making their case. Percentage pay claims keep inequality unchanged. Dollar pay claims reduce within firm inequality. We can think of raising earnings for the lowest paid as flow up economics, a theory that has a good deal more empirical support than the discredited notion of trickle down economics. Today, we take it for granted that unions, that employers should not be legally allowed to pay people less because of their race or their gender. But it took unions to fight for that change. When 200 Gurindji people walked off the Wave Hill cattle station in 1966, it was the trade union movement that supported the right of indigenous people to be fairly paid. Unions filed claims in the mid-1960s to remove racially discriminatory clauses from the pastoral industry and station hands awards. Indigenous workers were among the lowest paid in Australia, so those cases helped equalise the distribution of wages. A few years later, 
was the ACTU's equal pay cases of 1969-1972 that led to the removal of institutionalised gender pay discrimination from industrial agreements. Without union activism, it would have taken longer for those outdated clauses to be scrapped. Because women tend to earn less than men, the equal pay cases help reduce earnings inequality across the board in Australia. Not surprisingly, unions boost wages. One recent study finds that unions increase wages by 5 to 10%. As an aside, given that union dues are typically 1% or less, that's a pretty good rate of return on union dues. It also suggests that if Australia had the same union membership rate now as we did in the early 1980s, average wages could be up to 4% higher. For the purposes of thinking about inequality, it's important to note that the impact of unions is strongest at the bottom of the distribution. Unions often campaign for pay equity across workplaces and industries. The 2012 Social and Community Sector by Equal Pay case is a good example of this. In bringing the case, the five unions noted that around 80% of workers in the social and community sector were women. They argued that because they did caring work, they'd been systematically underpaid compared to those in other occupations with comparable skills and working in similar conditions. Fair Work Australia agreed and laid down an eight-year transition to better pay for those workers. To illustrate the point, take the gender pay gap. Using the Melbourne Institute's HILDA survey, I calculated the gender pay gap in hourly earnings across nearly 8,000 workers. Among non-union workers, women earn 13% less than men. Among unionised workers, the gap is 7%, approximately half as large, which suggests that unions play a significant role in narrowing the gender pay gap. The same holds true for Indigenous workers. Similar analysis I've done suggests that if they're not in a union, Indigenous people earn 18% lower hourly wages. But among unionised workers, the wage gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous workers closes to 5%. As with the gender gap, unions don't close the racial pay gap entirely, but they make a big difference. So every time you hear people proposing policies that make it harder for unions to organise, remember what this means for our economy. A larger gender pay gap, Indigenous Australians being left further behind, and more economic inequality. Today, a central challenge for Australia is the sluggish growth in wages. As Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe observes, low wage growth diminishes our sense of shared prosperity. As the bank's most recent statement of monetary policy observes, weak growth in household income has posed a risk to the consumption outlook for some time. Consumption could be particularly sensitive to unexpected weakness in income, given the context of high household debt. Philip Lowe's international counterparts share the same concerns. At a recent press conference, US Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell admitted the lack of pay rises in America was a bit of a puzzle. In the wake of many US companies responding to the Trump company tax cut with share buybacks rather than wage rises, Powell admitted, we don't really have the tools that'll address the distribution of profits and that kind of thing. Now, historically, a scarcity of workers has led to higher pay. 
a relationship documented by economists in what we call the Phillips curve after New Zealander Bill Phillips. Yet despite historically low unemployment, many American workers are experiencing flatlining wages. There's a good business case for better paid workers. Short-sighted businesses want low-paid workers and high-paid customers. Far-sighted businesses recognise their workers and their customers are the same people. As The Guardian's Greg Jericho noted recently, households have shut their wallets as a lack of real wage growth continues. The annual retail spending figures are, he says, bloody awful on a historical basis. While new car sales are down 8%. If you want to boost retail sales, putting money in the wages of the lowest paid workers is the best strategy. High income earners save a significant share of their wages. Low wage workers spend a lot. As I've noted, the gap between productivity growth and wage growth opened up around 2012 and shows no signs of abating. It's large and it's persistent. It's driven down the labour share of national income and it's hurting economic growth. Sally McManus has pithily put it, Australia needs a pay rise. So how do we get here? Economist Saul Leslie contrasts the situation now with the economic circumstances Australia faced in the late 1970s. Back then, real wages were, ex were accelerating faster than productivity. Economists dubbed the solution the real wage overhang. The solution was the accord, an agreement that promised wage moderation in exchange for improvements in the social wage. It was a drastic measure, but it worked. But today, the problem's reversed. Australia is experiencing a real wage underhang. Workers have failed to get their share of productivity growth. The union movement's Change the Rules campaign is about getting some balance and fairness back in the system. If unions are relegated to the margins and a social safety net is eroded, not only will low-paid workers suffer, but our entire economy will suffer. As Saul Eslake points out, Corporate managers aren't judged on their share of profits. They're not judged on the profit share. They're judged on their actual profits. Firms would be better off with a smaller share of a growing pie than a larger share of a shrinking pie. You don't need to march under the Eureka flag to see there's a problem. Bank of England's chief economist, Andy Haldane, notes that Britain has seen a growth in self-employment, temporary work, zero-hours contract and non-unions jobs. Haldane argues this makes work more divisible than in the past. Even if these trends haven't spread across the entire economy, the marginal worker is more likely than in the past to be self-employed, to work flexibly and not to be in a union. Because wages are set at the margin, this might explain wage stagnation. Haldane summarises his argument. One story here is divide and conquer. There's power in numbers. A workforce that is more easily divided than in the past may find itself more easily conquered. In other words, a world of divisible work may reduce workers' wage bargaining power. Already, Bill Shorten and Brendan O'Connor have announced some of the ways Labor would restore fairness to our industrial relations system. 
will reverse the arbitrary cut to Sunday penalty rates for 700,000 workers. We'll tackle sham contracting and dodgy phoenixing. We'll end the oxymoron of permanent casuals. And we'll prevent labour hire firms from eroding earnings by legislating the simple principle. Same job, same pay. But tackling inequality needs to apply across the board, including in the boardroom. So tonight I want to announce another policy to promote fairness and improve equality. According to the most recent annual report of the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors, the average realised pay of ASX 100 CEOs rose by 9% last year. That's four times faster than average wage growth. Among the ASX 100, median CEO pay is now $4 million. Mean CEO pay is $6 million. Since 2001, reported pay for ASX 100 CEOs has doubled. Even if we take the most generous measure of workers' pay, full-time, adult, average total earnings, Average pay for ASX 100 CEOs was 75 times the average pay of full-time workers. That means a CEO takes home in a single year what it would take the average worker nearly two lifetimes to accrue. Put another way, the average top 100 CEO earns an average worker's annual salary every five days. The report noted that the best paid CEO was Domino's Don Madge, whose total remuneration was $37 million. This was after a year in which the Fair Work Ombudsman publicly complained that Domino's had failed to comply with requests to provide information into claims that Domino's franchisees were paying workers as little as $10 an hour. Last year, Mr Madge earned $10 every eight seconds. In 2016, Australians were similarly outraged by the news that amidst controversies surrounding Australia's big four banks, the Commonwealth Bank CEO's realised pay was $12 million. Last year, in the aftermath of the Austrac scandal, the bank announced it would be cutting executive bonuses and directors' fees. CEO pay wasn't always so stratospheric. A few years ago, economist Mike Pottinger and I wrote a paper in which we calculated the ratio of the pay of the BHP CEO to the average worker from 1887 onwards. We found that by the late 1970s, the BHP CEO was earning only six or seven times what an average Australian worker earned. Yet last year, the BHP CEO earned 74 times the wage of an average Australian worker. Rising CEO pay isn't just an Australian problem. In the wake of, of the global financial crisis, many pointed to the remuneration packages of executives as a contributing factor to the crisis, citing their potential adverse effects on risk-taking. In 2017, the average pay packet for CEOs at S&P 500 companies was 361 times what the average US worker earned. In the UK, the mean pay ratio between FTSE 100 CEOs and the pay package of their employees is 145 to 1. But in both those countries, 
legislators have act, acted to provide greater transparency. Under the 2010 Dodd-Frank Act and rules signed off by the US Securities and Exchange Commission in 2015, companies now right, required to calculate and disclose a ratio of total CEO pay to median US employee pay within their firm. The first reports are being released during this year's proxy season. Those reports have seen Bloomberg Media start a CEO pay tracker. Recent attention has focused on record CEO pay ratios, such as Mattel's CEO, receiving 4,987 times as much as that firm's average worker. The other end of the spectrum, Salesforce's CEO earns 30 times the wage of its average worker. The difference is on both ends. Compared with Mattel, Salesforce pays its CEO less and its workers more. In Britain, Conservative Prime Minister Theresa May introduced regulations to Parliament in June that will require large listed UK companies to publish ratios of CEO pay to their average worker. Firms are provided with an opportunity to explain their wage strategy to shareholders and to justify the gap in remuneration. The first reports are likely due by 2020. Stephen Martin, Director General of the UK Institute of Directors, said companies will have to prepare themselves to explain how pay as a whole in their business operates and why executives are worth their packages. So today I'm pleased to announce that a shortened Labor government will require all listed Australian firms with more than 250 employees to report the ratio of their CEO pay to the pay of their median employee. By focusing on the median employee, people will get an accurate picture of how the pay of the person at the top of the firm compares with the pay of the typical employee. Firms will have an opportunity to provide a public explanation of their remuneration strategy. There's nothing in free market capitalism that says that CEOs need to be overpaid. Indeed, excessive CEO pay makes firms less profitable than they should be. The late Peter Drucker, frequently credited as the father of modern management theory, says, I've often advised managers that a 20 to 1 salary ratio is the limit beyond which they cannot go. They don't want resentment and falling morale to hit their companies. Labor's policy addresses public concern about the disproportionate growth in executive remuneration and extends current market reporting requirements for public companies in a way that will help inform investors as they calculate risk in their investment decisions. This is a pro-growth reform. Pay transparency should also have positive flow-ons for other workers. As the Australian National University's Kristen Sobeck and Robert Brunig observe, more pay transparency would likely realign the bargaining power between employers and employees and potentially improve outcomes for workers, employers and society as a whole. It could encourage firms to develop more transparent mechanisms for pay determination. CEO pay transparency complements other transparency initiatives announced by Labor, including the public release of gender gaps within firms, our tax haven transparency package, and the annual release of more tax data for large private firms. 
Now, I fully expect that some of our frothier critics will say this is an attack on capitalism. But nothing could be further from the truth. We've deliberately chosen not to impose a financial burden on firms that choose a particular level of CEO pay. Companies differ in their size and their complexity. We should expect the remuneration of the management team to differ accordingly. Additionally, there's significant risks of unintended consequences that can flow from a cap. It's now generally acknowledged that the Clinton administration's 1993 budget, which capped the deductibility of US CEO pay at a million dollars, but excluded performance-based pay, was a major factor in the explosion of stock options for CEOs in the following decade. Experts now believe that capping deductibility risks making the problem worse, and that a better approach is transparency. So I hope our policy will be welcomed by thoughtful sections of the business community, as it has been today by Domino's Don Mage. <laughs> At the very least, I hope that those who have been telling us repeatedly that we should follow the United States and its corporate tax system won't now complain when we follow the United States and its corporate transparency system. And I'd certainly hope that Australia's Conservatives aren't so extreme that they would reject a measure currently being championed by British Conservative Prime Minister Theresa May. Getting wage growth going again is a central economic challenge for Australia. This isn't just about fairness, though certainly it would increase, uh, would increase equality. Wage growth would spur consumer spending allowing retailers to expand. With the household debt ratio at historic highs, decent wage growth would provide a buffer against an increase in interest rates or a sudden economic shock, like perhaps a trade war. It might even lead to higher productivity growth. As economist Robert Allen notes, artificially low labour costs can deter firms for investing in new technologies. Part of the answer to boosting wages must lie in improving our industrial laws. As history teaches us, collective action has been behind many of the significant improvements in pay and conditions for Australian workers. Yet today, with the rise of non-standard forms of work, such as part-time employment and labour hire, workers are more divisible. Shifting the balance towards employees isn't too radical for central bankers. So it kind of makes you wonder why the Abbott Turnbull Morrison government wants to take us in the opposite direction. The Shorten government will ensure not only that Australia gets a pay rise, but also that we have a stronger conversation about the pay gap between the corner office and the factory floor. By requiring listed firms to report on the pay ratio between the CEO and the median employee, companies would be encouraged to think how they're serving all their workers and society as a whole. In the Banking Royal Commission, we've seen the results of a greed is good philosophy that extracts value for managers and investors at the expense of customers and workers. A smarter approach set out by corporate management expert Lynn Stout is to recognise that a company's purpose is not only to provide equity investors with solid returns, 
But as she puts it, also to build great products, to provide decent livelihoods for employees, and to contribute to the community and nation. It's not just a more equitable approach, it's a more sustainable approach. In the long run, it's one that's less likely to leave us vulnerable to the boom and bust cycle. Stronger unions, better wage growth, and fairer firms are the recipe for a more prosperous society. Thank you very much.